0: If you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. One of my indelible memories of a church experience that didn't go so well was when I was about 12 years old and I'd just gotten my first real suit. Um, Prior to that, I'd had slacks and sport coats, but I wanted to have a real suit. Now that at age 12, my growing was, I thought, slowing down. So we had gone to Asheville to Bon Marche, which used to be a chain of stores like Sears used to be a chain of stores. And um, I I got this suit. It was black with uh, pinstripes. I got a black shirt and a white polyester tie that I thought made me look really sophisticated. Instead, I, of course, looked like a miniature gangster wannabe, but uh, but I thought I was styling. And so um, I listened. Uh, our church didn't have services in the summer because it was located at a conference center and various groups would come in and put on conference, uh, conferences there at the conference center. And I... I heard the first part of this fellow's sermon, and it was so bad that I decided at age 12, I really don't need this. And I got up and walked out. My parents weren't there. They were doing ministry at a reform school. And uh, I got up, I walked out, and as I was walking out the back door, there was a a young boy, probably no more than nine or ten, which of course to a 12-year-old is just an eternity. And uh, he was seated on the back stairs, and I Thought as he looked at me that he must be really admiring how I looked. And so I gave him a smile, I was walking very quickly, gave him a smile and a nod, thinking to myself how impressive I must be, and turned full force into a stone wall, face first. I mean, just boom! And I mean, it was shocking. But I turned back to give this boy sort of a reassuring glance that all was well. And I couldn't see him. <laughs> I was, I'd hit the wall that hard. I mean, literally, I was about to black out. And I turned and, putting my hand against the wall, staggered down the side of the wall and around the corner, leaving that building. And when I got around the corner where no one could see me, I just leaned up against the wall and had to pray. There was a verse that came to my mind immediately, and that verse was, pride goes before a fall. Or, in this case, a wall. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus is asked a question by his disciples. And it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. You know, when you've read the Bible a lot and heard the Bible a lot, you sometimes get sort of desensitized and don't realize how often Jesus' response to people was shocking. The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes those who are blessed, was a shocking thing. Because Jesus was saying that people who were in the position that most of us don't want to be in, things like poor in spirit or persecuted, are blessed. If that's true, and it is, that's surprising. Jesus' disciples didn't just want to be in the kingdom, they wanted to know what they had to do to be the greatest. I want some rank. Do you remember when two of the disciples got their mom to come and ask Jesus if they could have the seats on either side of him when he came into his kingdom? They wanted to be the big shots. And so they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus surprises them with his answer, because before he gives a verbal answer, he turns and he calls a child over to him. Apparently, Jesus had the sort of personality that did not repel children. That's worth noting. Okay? If you want to be like Jesus, don't scare the kids off. All right? So, Jesus called a little child to, them, uh, to him... And then he said to them, unless you change, note that word, and become like a little child, you won't even get into the kingdom. You don't need to worry about rank. You need to worry about entrance. Jesus would tell a very respected religious leader, you need to be born again. Jesus goes on to say what it is about the child that he's particularly referring to, and that is humility. He says, you need to be like this child, not in your physical stature. It's not that you need to do this if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Not in your education. You know, you've got to forget everything you learned in school. No. What has to happen? What has to change is you have to humble yourself. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, Jesus says that there are no exceptions to this rule. Matthew 23, 1 through 12, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. They do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called, Rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That is what Jesus says he's calling us to. Take up your cross and follow me. If anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, you've got to lay it all down. You can't just give up part of your life, part of your schedule, some of your money. You have to put the whole thing at Jesus' feet. You've got to yield everything to him. That is the standard. You want to know the price of greatness? It'll cost you everything. Jesus takes a basin and a towel, and does the job that no slave wanted to be assigned. He washes the disciples' feet. None of them would do it. It needed to be done. They're about to have a meal together, but Jesus was the one who humbled himself and said, now, you see what I've done for you. This is what you're to do for one another. The price of greatness very surprising. But Jesus is the one who says so. The second thing we see in this passage, beginning in verses 6 down through 9, is the horrible cost of sin. The horrible cost of sin. Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That is the scripture reference we have on the sign at the welcome center at the ranch. At Wears Valley Ranch, we put that text, and there have been people over the years, many of them parents, who were bringing a child to us, who've asked, you know, what, what's that Bible verse? And I answer. It says that if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he'd be better off dead. Because that's what Jesus says. Better off with a large millstone tied around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. That's something to remember in the culture we're living in. It may seem a bit harsh, but it's the word of our loving Lord. Because sin is deadly. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Jesus here says that if your hand causes you to sin or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, you're better off limping into hell, or into heaven, than dancing your way into hell. You do not want to cling to that thing because it's so precious. Whatever it may be, lay it down. Get rid of it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. Now, one of my brothers observed some years ago that This is not literally a call to self-mutilation, because if we did that, all that would be left in church is a bunch of navels. I mean, we all have trouble with our bodies, don't we? And Jesus chose things of which you have two, knowing, hopefully, that people would understand if my hand were the problem and I cut it off... I'd still have a problem. If my foot were the problem and I cut it off, I'd still have a problem. If my eye was the problem and I removed it, I'd still have a problem. What do I need? I need a new heart. I need to be changed from the inside out. God is the only one who can do that, but Jesus' point here is not how to surgically improve yourself. Jesus' point here is the seriousness of sin. Where will you end up if you just continue in sin? Jesus says it. You're going to hell. Tragically, many churches today utterly refuse to proclaim what Jesus said about the consequences of sin or about the sinfulness of sin. We don't even want to say that's wrong. Because, hey, you know, who are we to judge? Well, to say we're not to judge should mean we leave it to God. In which case, we ought to bother to see what God says. And what God says is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just happen to have a little marker there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, God says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty direct, isn't it? God says the consequence of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there. When it says the wages of sin is death, in Romans chapter 6, it says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when it says, Don't be deceived, these folks are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, it says, verse 11, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. The consequence of sin is death, but there's more to the story. Jesus came to save sinners. Yes, we need to be serious about the sinfulness of sin and about the consequences of that sin. But, oh, folks, we need to be focused on the good news of Jesus. Jesus, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus says in verse 10 and following, See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, hear this. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. The title of this message is The Value of One. When my wife and I were starting the ranch, I was still pastoring in Atlanta and trying to lay the groundwork long distance. And I began to realize in order to be licensed by the state, First of all, in order to admit children, we had to be licensed by the state. In order to be licensed by the state, we had to have a facility that met all the legal requirements. And we had to have staff who were trained and policies in place and insurance and all kinds of things, all set up, ready to go before we could admit our first child. You have to do this stuff to get the license, and you have to have a license to admit your first child. And suffice it to say, from an economical standpoint, it was not it was not looking very good. I mean it, it, our cost per child, I could tell at that stage was going to be incredibly high and I was very uncomfortable with that, and I went to sleep wrestling with that, and I woke up at about two or two thirty in the morning, just startled awake. By a question. I didn't hear God's voice audibly, but this question was so vivid, I knew who was speaking to me. And the question was, how much is one child worth? I opened the bedside table drawer and got a pen and wrote that down, and it was the, it was the cover of our first brochure for the ranch. How much is one child worth? I'll call her Mary. When she was six years old, her stepfather waited until mom had gone to work. It was actually Mary's sixth birthday. And after mom went to work, stepdad said, I have something special I want to give you today, and took her to the bedroom closet and raped her. Better off dead. Better off dead. Not the child. The rapist. But after she'd been at the ranch for a while, that little girl asked me a question at the end of devotions when we had a question and answer time. And she said, Is it okay to pray for someone who's done bad things to you? And I said, Absolutely. Absolutely. Her heart, having been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ, was such that now she cared even about the worst monster, praying that God would have mercy on him. The young man I'll call Mark was molested by his older sister. And when an investigation followed, it turned out that the sister was doing to the younger brother what the father had been doing to the sister. And this wasn't speculation. When questioned, the father confessed and went to prison for it, which is one stop short of where people who molest children should be, okay? I believe... Biblically, that it is appropriate to execute them before we bury them. But I do believe that the appropriate consequence based on this scripture and others is that under the ground is a good place for people who do that sort of thing to children. Because Jesus says, you're better off dead than doing that. That young man, after graduating from the ranch, went into the military, became an officer, did well, served in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then came back and worked for the Pentagon. He has said over and over, including in writing, that his experience at the ranch was the first thing that gave him hope. Because that's where he met Jesus. Let me tell you something, folks. The only reason the ranch has any effectiveness at all is because of Jesus. We've had kids who've come to the ranch and said, God lives here. And the answer is yes. It's not the only place that God is alive. But I'm so glad that kids can come and experience the truth that God lives here. A young woman whose story is horrible came to the ranch when she was in her early teens and is now the program director for a multi-million dollar facility For Developmentally Disabled Adults in the Houston, Texas area. She not only runs the program at that ministry, but she has employed two of our other ranch graduates who are working in that ministry with her. It's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And she just recently called again and spoke with us on the phone, and she said, people keep asking me, where did you learn all this stuff? And I tell them, where's Valley Ranch? She said that her executive director is wanting to come and tour the ranch, having now watched lots of videos and that kind of thing. Let me tell you something. It's not the geography. It's the Spirit of God. But when Jesus is speaking to us in this passage, he says, your father's not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So the first thing I want to close with is the fact that you are special to God. How, how many of us have to be here together in order for this to be significant? Okay. One. Well, it's it's good though if we can get a group, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's great. The more the merrier. But understand that God isn't allowing you to come to Him because you're coming in a group and you can kind of, you know, slouch down a little bit and hope He doesn't notice you. That's not the way it works. He loves you. He really, 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 really loves you. Jesus says, Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's notice. And I'm telling you, you're worth more than many sparrows. Those are the words of Jesus. You matter to God. You do. Oh, but I've sinned. We all have. But I still have problems. We all do. But he loves you. You. Not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. He loves you. You need to know that. But the flip side is that you need to also recognize recognize that truth about the people around you. Because there are some people who just really feel like God couldn't possibly love me. And they need to know, yes, God loves you. But there are other people who feel pretty good about it. You know, okay. you know I've been on God's team now for a number of years. I've made a number of uh, what I consider to be pretty significant contributions to the cause of Christ. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are a number of other worthy individuals in our community and uh, possibly even in our church, but, um, you know, there are these other people who just, uh how many of them does it take to be worth your attention? How many of them add up to deserving your investment? How much is one child worth? The value of one. Jesus said the shepherd will leave the ninety and nine to go after the one. You know why? Because that one matters. That one matters. Well, I think we could come up maybe with a way to do this more effectively. Jesus says, if you want to be great become the servant. If you've got a sin problem, do what it takes to cut it out of your life. And if you want to know how significant you and other people are, realize God doesn't even want one to be lost. That's good news. That's why Jesus came. And we need to thank him. Let's pray. Father, Father, What you are doing is amazing. I thank you for this church and for the people in it, for the amazing way that you have used them to bless the staff and children at Wares Valley Ranch. I thank you, Lord, for the beautiful campus you've given us, for the lovely facilities. For the tremendous personnel. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. Unless you build the house, those that build it labor in vain. So help us, we pray, to do what you call us to do. Not to bring you an agenda, but to respond, yes, Lord, to your calling and yield everything to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.